So you are here night three. Uh, anybody here been all three nights so far? Wow, that's awesome. All right, so let me give you an overview for those of you who weren't here for all three nights. Number, the first night we shared uh, the common lies and the misconceptions and the cliches we have about the will of God. Things like everything happens for a reason or it's impossible to be outside of God's will. We also looked at uh, things like God is in total control all the time and everything that happens is his will. And so we looked at all these different kind of sayings that have entered our vocabulary and we looked at them according to scripture and we debunked a lot of them, uh, which was really fun. And uh, so that was really disarming for some of you. Some of you guys got messed up, which was really fun. Night number two, last week, blessed all you guys who were there because we went through every single passage in the Bible on the will of God. It was 70. Uh, that probably is a, some record somewhere for some pastor given that number of sermon uh, or number of scripture references. But it was a lot of fun. But we wanted to leave that night knowing that you can't, you, you have an obligation when the word says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is, that we should all observe what the will of God is. And we did it all in one sitting. And we understood that the will of God, all 70 passages, reduced down to one of three things. One was the will of God was the cross, that God would make a way for man to have reconciliation with God. The second thing is that the will of God is salvation, that once Christ sacrificed himself, the will of God for every human being is to believe in him and receive life. The third thing, after you receive salvation, the will of God for your life as a believer is to walk in obedience to Jesus and his command. And so that is what we looked at on night number two, and we found a lot of fun things about that. Uh, one is that God's will cannot come to pass. If God's will is for salvation for all people, we realize that not all people are saved. And Jesus even says in Matthew 18, 14, it is not the will of my Father who's in heaven for anyone, these little ones, to perish. But we know people perish. And so we know that God's will is for all people to be saved, yet not all are saved. And we also saw that Jesus said in his prayer, not my will, but your will. And so we have this this union that Jesus had to bring his will into submission to the Father's will. And so by, by that, we looked at how the Pharisees, Jesus wanted the Pharisees to be saved, but he said that you were unwilling. We looked at how he looked at Jerusalem, says, I wanted to save you and gather you like a hen gathers chicks, and says, but you were unwilling. It's the exact same word used in the will of God. And so that is where we kind of left off, and I left you on a little bit of a cliffhanger, asking, how then is God's will fulfilled? So we're going to answer that tonight, and if we have time, I'm going to walk into also the most common use case that we have for God's role in hardship in trials and tribulations, which is the book of Job. Everyone's always got a question about Job, so we're going to put that one to rest, and then hopefully... I'm going to talk to you about trials and tribulations and joy. So that's the plan for the night. Why don't you pray with me, and we'll get started. Father, we just uh, come to you, Lord, and we just surrender ourselves to the truth of your word. Lord, I just ask that this would be a night that the eyes and the ears of our heart would be open, that we'd be able to see clearly, Lord, what you've laid out in the scriptures, that we'd have understanding. And so, Lord, would you help illuminate for us understanding in this difficult topic, and, and Lord, that every word that would proceed from my mouth would be a faithful interpretation of the scriptures, be a faithful interpretation of what is really true. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So one thing to bring to you is that when I was wrestling with the will of God, so much 
of the will of God was wrestling around topics, not what should I do, but why is this thing going wrong? We oftentimes have the most questions about the will of God, not when everything is going great, but when everything goes wrong. And the question we have is, what is God's role in this pain, in this hardship that I have? What is God's role in this sickness, this disease, this challenge that I have? And so the goal here is for us in this last night to understand what is God's involvement, his responsibility in the pain and hardships of our life. Because a lot of us, sometimes we don't have that answer, and it's just easy to say, well, God has a mysterious plan that I don't understand. And that, for me, was so difficult that I, I, I felt that in this rationalization for God to be involved in so many of the trials and tribulations and hardships that we actually impugn the character of God, that God no longer is good. And so tonight I'm going to give you what I believe to be the most clear understanding that I think the scriptures have for it. But if you don't like it, if you don't prefer it, that's okay. I have no job to lose if you do not like it. Uh, but I do ask that if you are curious, if you have verses, if you have questions, we're going to leave time for the end, but also email me. I would love to have the dialogue with you guys. If there's something you guys want to dialogue about it, um, I would love that, that engagement with you. So, uh, so we left off with how is God's will fulfilled on earth? And it's very, very simple. It's shockingly simple. God's will is accomplished on earth by working through your will. How is the will of God accomplished on earth? He works through your will to accomplish his will on earth. I'll let that sink in just for a second because that upsets a lot of people. Here's the thing. I'm on a search right now through the scriptures, and I'm trying to find any move of God where God did not incorporate another human being. It's amazing how often when God moves, something miraculous, you find the participation, you find the collaboration with man. And there are countless references throughout the scriptures, but I have one favorite. It's Philippians 2.13. It says, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You can ask, how does God fulfill his purpose? You work it backwards. He uses believers to act, who have a will in them that they have been moved by God who works in them. It is God who works in you to will. I have a desire. And then to act, I actually move in order to fulfill his good purpose. And so this actually makes sense when we think about that our salvation did not just change your destination when you died. Some people think that your salvation just changed what happens to you after you're dead. But that's not what the Bible says. If you want to have your mind completely blown, study the scriptures about who you are because of the cross and because of the life of Jesus in you. It's not just simply that we're now going to heaven and not going to hell. You have been utterly transformed. The reason that I know that God works his will in you so that you work it on the earth is for how he transformed you. He did not need to transform you. He could have given you the fire insurance and been done. And we would have been thankful and said, amen, Jesus. Thank you. But he transformed you. And he transformed you in a radical way. It says that you are a new creation in Christ. The word there is like prototype, never seen before. You're a brand new creation. Galatians 2.20 says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
2 Corinthians 5.20 says, You are Christ's ambassador, and Christ is making an appeal through you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and God's Spirit dwells within you. 1 Corinthians 3.8 says, You are co-laboring with Christ. And this is just scratching the surface. There's like 20 other verses that talk about your identity, your utter transformation in Christ. The only reason God would transform you on earth is that you could be the vessel in which God's will is accomplished from heaven to earth. And so when we consider this, and then we consider Jesus' prayer, God, he prays to the Father, would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Your life is the answer to Jesus' prayer. When we understand that God fulfills his will on earth through the will of people, you are a living, breathing, walking answer to Jesus' prayer. When he was praying in the garden to the Father, he was thinking of you. And he lives in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his purpose. And so I firmly believe anything that God does on earth, he's going to do through man. And he partners with him. And so he does this so that the will on earth, the will in heaven to be done on earth goes through his people. But we all know from last week, that God's will doesn't always come to pass, which troubles a lot of us because we want all things to be done according to his will. But that's not the case. How do we understand that? Well, ironically, Hebrews 2 talks about this exact same problem, that you have man who's been given all authority, who's been given dominion over the earth, but yet the earth is still not obeying. Look at this, Hebrews 2, verse 7 and 8. You have made him, this is man, a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Two things to notice here is that all things are subjected to man, but not all things are obeying. All things are subjected to man, but we do not see all of creation following man's authority. Why? It's because the will of God coming from heaven to earth is still a work in progress. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have to pray for that to be done, right? Jesus prays for God's will to be done on heaven, on, excuse me, God, Jesus prays for God's will on heaven to be done on earth for the exact reason that God's will on earth is not always being done. And so we can answer the question, why do bad things happen? It's because God's will is good and perfect. Amen? Romans 12, 2, God's will is good and perfect. But we have the anti-will of God occurring when people reject God's will for their life. The only way for God's will not to be done on earth is for man to reject God's will for his own life. And the product that we see of all the earth is actually not just God's will still coming to pass is actually people resisting the will of God for their life. And when man rejects the will of God for his life, another will steps in. Not only is it just the selfish will of man, when man rejects God's will for his life, but another kind of will happens. I think I might be the only person on earth that's noticed this in the Bible. I've Googled it a lot. It's the will of Satan. The will of Satan, it's a thing. Even when Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he was grieving over why the Pharisees would not, who were unwilling to receive him, look at what Jesus says about them. It says, this is John 8, uh, 34, it says, You 
are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The desires word is the same word as will. You are of your father, and you want to do your father's will. So we have this active will of Satan that's here in the Bible, and we see the will of Satan working through the will of men who reject the will of God. Remember, last week we briefly talked about in the QA that the will of Satan is to come against the will of God. What's the will of God? The cross. And we saw how Satan tried to thwart the life of Jesus, had no idea that he was fulfilling every prophecy for the cross. Super cool. But then the will of God is salvation. And, and Satan comes against the will of God for salvation among us. And the last is that we have a call for obedience according to the will of God. And so Satan comes against our obedience by sowing into us disobedience. Let me show you a couple examples. This is the will of Satan coming against salvation. This is Luke 8, 11 and 12. It says, now this is the parable. The seed is the word of God, and those beside the road are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. Look at this. So they will not believe and be saved. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we see Satan as this active agent in coming against the will of God for salvation for all people. We also see the will of Satan coming against man to do Satan's will by creating disobedience. 2 Timothy 2.26 says, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. We have the will of God. It's great that we study the will of God, but we also should be versed in the will of Satan as well. And Paul is very clear about these individuals who surrender their will to the will of Satan. He actually calls them three times sons of disobedience. And three times, Paul blames Satan for stopping him from going to see churches. And we are pretty sure that that means another man or other men, not someone in a red jumpsuit with a pointy tail. And so Paul references how Satan is thwarting what he wants to do among other people. And we're so puzzled when we have, like, adversity in our life that we want to do something great for God, and all of a sudden it gets really difficult. We're like, oh, man, it just must be a coincidence. No, we actually have an enemy who is trying to stop you from being obedient to Christ. And we think, oh, it's just, just by happenstance. And so just like the will of God is accomplished through man, much of the will of Satan occurs through man as well. The will of God happens through God working in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his purpose. Satan is a counterfeiter. He works through the will of man to act and to will in order to fulfill his purpose. The question is, which one are we going to listen to? But here's the problem. So many of us, we minimize the role of Satan. On one extreme here, I've, I've fielded a couple complaints, is that we want to esteem God's sovereignty. And we should. God is sovereign. Sovereign means rule and authority. It doesn't mean control. It means rule and authority. But we want God to be so sovereign that he controls everything. And I get that. We want every molecule to be in accordance with what God designed. Everything happens exactly the way God wants to. The problem with that is that now you have made the personhood of Satan almost illegitimate. If God controls everything the way it's going to happen, then why do we need a devil? What role does he have? What legitimacy does he have? And so the devil, 
in this notion that God controls everything is not really a real force, is he? How do you authentically resist the devil if God's controlling everything? But so many people have no idea what Satan is capable of. Like, we need to, we have an adversary, we have an enemy, and the scriptures say, who goes to war without, like, counting the cost and studying the opponent? And so many people are clueless as to what the enemy can do. I accumulated a list. This is in the book. I'm going to rattle off just a few of them. Things that Satan does. He is the world's original murderer. He is a thief, a killer, and a destroyer. He is the father of lies and has no truth in him. He's the ruler of this world, the prince of the air, causing disobedience in people. Satan inhibits and blocks our plans. Satan sabotages the works of God and the power and is the sower of evil. Satan seeks to devour and destroy. He tempts you. He takes advantage of you. Satan puts evil plans into people's hearts. Satan inspires you to lie. Satan traps you and to cause condemnation upon you. Satan tricks people to do his will. Satan holds people in bondage. Satan is a destroyer of the flesh. Satan strategizes against you for the right time. Satan enters into people. Satan is in pursuit of people for evil. Satan causes trials and tribulations. Satan is an oppressor of people. Satan is a schemer and is always looking for an opportunity. Satan is an attempted murder on their baby Jesus, especially egregious. Satan tried to convince Jesus to commit suicide. Satan is thinks that he's superior to God. Satan blinds the eyes of those who might believe. Satan is an imposter and a masquerader. Satan prohibits belief in the hearts of those who would hear the gospel. Satan creates stumbling blocks and makes people fall. That's just a few. Do we have a real enemy? I think so. And you look through all of that and we wonder, wow, God, what are you doing? Why is this so hard? He's like, have you looked at the enemy yet? (laughs) He's wondering, are we really in touch with the active will of Satan? And so this operates largely through the will of man who resists the will of God and allows the will of Satan to operate through them. So right here we get to ask, among that huge laundry list, who bears the responsibility for hardship, pain, tragedy, and tribulation? How can we point the finger to God when we have countless examples and evidence for all pain that we can encounter and face with the devil's fingerprint on it. And sometimes I wonder if like Jesus is in heaven and he's like, guys, come on. I made this really, really easy. The devil's bad and God is good. And we're like, so God causes cancer? No, 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 no. Because Jesus made it really clear, just a few references that the enemy, he says in John 10.10, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. John 5.19, the evil one is in control of the whole world. John 16, 33, that in this world you will have trouble. And, of course, Ephesians 4, 27 instructs us to be on guard and do not give the devil a foothold. So Jesus is thoroughly warning us for all the destruction and calamity that can come from Satan. All the while, we completely ignore verses like, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord plans to prosper you, not to harm you. That his kindness leads you to repentance. That every good and perfect gift comes from above. That's who God says he is. And we have plain before us the author of all deceit. But yet somehow, so many of us get confused about who's responsible for the the pain and hardships we have. And that, my friend, is the devil's greatest trick. The devil's greatest lie and his greatest victory is to steal, kill, and destroy from you and then lead you into a lie that God is responsible. 
Satan's greatest victory on earth is to steal from you and then lead you into a lie to believe that God is responsible for your hardship. The devil's plan is for you to believe your hardship is from God. Why? It's because when you believe God is responsible for your hardship, you won't resist. If the devil can convince you that God is authoring your pain and your hardship, you won't resist. Why would you? And that is the exact story of Job. A man who was attacked by Satan, who thought it was from God, and never successfully resisted the devil. Can I go into Job? Job is probably single-handedly responsible for the vast majority of the bad theology we have about God authoring our hardship and our trials and our pain. is this one book. So what I want to do is I want to guide you along a couple of the key ideas and figures, key passages here. I could spend another five weeks just on this book, but I'm going to give you the highlights here, okay? So let me give you these key ideas. I'm going to start from the chapter one. I'm going to read it to you. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came along them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around it. Huh, it almost sounds like he's roaming around prowling like a lion. That doesn't sound like another Bible verse. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, right here, we should pause and stop and raise our hand because it seems as if God is giving Satan some suggestions. From this passage right here, we find people who say, well, Satan needs permission to attack you. He will never attack you unless God gives him permission first, and so it's going to be okay. Like, we get all sorts of crazy ideas right here from this little line, which is a silly idea. But in the Hebrew here, the phrase, I'll sound it out to you, is sum laval, sum laal. This phrase means, why have you set your heart against my servant Job? Over here, we read it, it says, have you considered my servant Job? Because I just need to give you some ideas to attack somebody. Job's a worthy person. When actually, God says, he's a righteous and holy man. Why have you set your heart against my servant? Why are you picking on Job? You're like, well, how do we know? Well, the Hebrew says that, but we know conclusively because of what Satan says next. Satan has done his homework on Job. Look what Satan says right next. He says, you have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He surely will curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now we need to understand correctly what just happened here. Satan tries to incite God against Job. Is what he just tried to do. And Satan knows everything about Job. And God refuses. It's important to know that God did not say, okay, I will. What God says, behold, the power is in your hands. That word there means look what already is. Because if you remember at the Garden of Eden, man surrendered all authority to the devil at the garden. 
The devil didn't get any new authority. Nothing unlocked for him. The devil already was given full authority to attack man and have dominion over the earth from the garden. So no special power has been given here. The devil is going to exercise what he already has. Now, we know the rest of the story what happens. Job suffers utter destruction. And who, we just saw that God says no, Satan proceeds forward and exercises his current power. But what does Job say happens? Job says in 1 verse 20, says, The Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, we write songs with this passage in it, which we're going to get back to. He says that in chapter 1. Chapter 2 says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? And so for the next 30 chapters, we see Job asking God, why did you do this? And justifying himself as righteous and undeserving of the hardship that he fell. Until Elihu, 30 chapters later, Elihu is the silent friend who remains silent. And he's like, I can't take it anymore. And we see that in chapter 33. And this is what Elihu, the single friend, rebukes Job and says, I've had enough. And he says this. You have said in my hearing, he's saying this about Job, I heard the very words, I am pure. I have done no wrong. I am clean and free from sin. Job is saying, I'm clean and free from sin. There's only one human that ever has lived to that standard. It's Jesus. There's a problem. So first, Elihu rebukes Job for believing that he's perfect. And then Elihu rebukes Job for all the words he previously spoke. He said in chapter 34, Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin, he adds rebellion. Watch this. Scornfully, he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. So Elihu is rebuking Job for saying things he knew nothing about. What was Job saying? That God is responsible for his destruction and that Job is undeserving because he was righteous. Now, the silly thing about having justification because you're righteous is the most righteous man who ever walked there is Jesus had the most adversity. It is not a fair thought to say I'm righteous and therefore nothing bad should ever happen to me. It probably is actually the opposite. That Jesus endured suffering and hardship for the very reason that he contended and was fully obedient to the will of God. You can find a direct relationship between the adversity and how closely you're following to the Father. More on that in a minute. But through all this, Elihu's rebuking Job, and then God enters the picture. And God says, Who is this that is obscuring my plans with words without knowledge? Basically, God's saying, what nincompoop is talking? (laughs) Who is speaking falsely about who I am? And God points out that all that we've read and heard from Job is incorrect. God God rebukes Job for throwing God under the bus. In verse 8 of chapter 40, he says, Would you condemn me in order to justify yourself? Translation, you are justifying yourself and condemning me for what happened. And to this, Job finally realizes he's wrong. See, we don't read all the verses in the book of Job. We read like, woo, 42 chapters. I think I'll get to four and like I get the, the idea here. But we read at the very end. Look at what Job does. Is In chapter 42, Job repents. He says, 
You ask, speaking to God, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of the things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent. We sing songs from a man who repented of the error of his words. Crazy. That the very end, what happens at the end of this book is that God rebukes Job. You spoke falsely of my nature. Job repents. And we also see that Job is like, I knew of you, but now I see you. We have had this idea that Job is this righteous, relationship-filled man, and he's confessing that he didn't. He knew of him, but now I see you. And so after Job repents, God rebukes all of Job's friends except for Elihu with one attribute. What did he say? He says, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me. So we see the story of the book of Job ends with everybody getting God's nature wrong and repenting. Bet you've never heard this translation of the book of Job before, have you? Here's something that's really fascinating. Does anybody know the very first mention of Satan in the Bible? Now, the really studious person would say 1 Chronicles, which would be correct, which is kind of fun. But many people don't realize the Bible is divided up categorically, not chronologically. Job's like, whoa, somewhere in the middle, right? But chronologically, Job is in the city of Uz, which falls chronologically at Genesis 10. Why is this important? The encounter that Job has with Satan is the first time Satan's ever mentioned, which means that Job had no idea Satan existed. Even if Job would have been familiar with the serpent, the serpent only deceived. Satan in the book of Job steals, kills, and destroys. It's the very first time Satan ever did that. So Job, having no idea that anything else existed besides God, had no other reason to believe anything besides God could take from him. The reason that Job said God gives and takes away is he had no idea anything else existed. Are you with me? And so it makes sense when Job says, shall we accept good and not adversary from God? Because he had no other idea that anything else could take from him. And so this is what it means is that the book of Job is the first instance where Satan developed his name as a stealer, a killer, and a destroyer. That's how he got his reputation. So when Jesus says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, we all should have a footnote there that says the book of Job. How do I know? Satan is mentioned 14 times in the Old Testament. Eleven of those times are in the book of Job. The unfortunate thing, Job, neither Job, neither his wife, his friends, no one ever mentioned the word Satan. No one ever acknowledged that Satan even existed. And yet the whole entire story of the book is how Satan stole from God's children 
and made God's children believe that their destruction came from God. Here's another funny thing. If you look for Satan in the Old Testament, you actually cannot find another human who recognizes the existence and the personhood of Jesus and resists him. So we have to look at Job as a story in which Satan stole, killed, and destroyed. And then Jesus comes and clarifies for us because the whole New Testament gives us amazing instruction on how to do warfare against an enemy. And so you can take the exact opposite instructions of the New Testament and you'll find them present in the book of Job. Let me say that again. The New Testament gives you instructions for warfare against an enemy. You can find the exact opposite instructions. You can find the exact opposite thing to do fulfilled in the book of Job. Let me give you the examples. 1 Peter 5, 6, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We saw that, right? Job was preoccupied. He was superstitious, continually making sacrifices for his children in case they sinned. Ephesians 27, do not give the devil a foothold. Job, I have no sin. Sounds like a foothold to me. Ephesians 6.13, put on the full armor of God so that on the day that evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, you will stand. Job, he sat among the ashes and conversed with his wife who told him to curse God and die. Jesus declared, the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Job says, God gives and takes away. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Job, he tore his robe and shaved his head and questioned God. So for 30 chapters, Job asks, why me and why God? When instead, if he was following the New Testament, he'd be like, Satan, where are you? Come out here because I'm about to whoop your butt. That's what should have happened. So if you want to know how not to fight the devil, read Job. If you want to know how to be victorious over the devil, follow Jesus. But one question remains. The devil is roaming around looking for someone to devour. He did his homework on Job. Pick Job. What was it about Job that attracted Satan? This is really important. I believe it's fear. Job 3.25, look what he says. This, I think, is the linchpin verse in the entire book. It says, what I have feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. In other words, when Job feared, it gave the devil ideas. Bill Johnson says that fear is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It invites the very thing that you're afraid of. You have a predator looking for someone to devour, and I believe fear, what we fear will come upon us, actually inspires him and gives him ideas. How are you guys doing? Okay. Do you want to talk about trials? Tribulation? Okay. If I go too long, someone send a hook out here to, like, drag me off. Isn't that super fun? So I've ruined the book of Job for probably most of you now. You're welcome. So let me address the last topic here tonight. 
which really so often we wrestle with in ways of the will of God is like, what is God's will in causing hardship, trials, tribulation? And now we know that we've looked at every single verse, we actually see that the will of God actually does not connect hardship. But we have a lot of tricky verses. We have a lot of suffering and hardship in the Bible. And it's really easy to get ourselves wound up in a theology that says God is sending trials to us. 1 John 2.6 says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. When you receive Jesus into your life, the chances are a lot of things that happen to Jesus will probably happen to you. Maybe not the cross, but a lot of other things. And so Jesus suffered and was persecuted. As Jesus is in you, it's perfectly reasonable to expect that you will be persecuted and hated. We can expect the exact same for us because however Jesus suffered for his decisions in following God's will, when we follow God's will, we can expect a lot of the same behaviors around us. And so when God is going to bring his will from heaven to earth through you, you better be ready that that's going to have some sparks. Otherwise, God's will be already done. The reason that God's will is not done is we'll have men, men and women, who have yet to yield their will to the Father's will so that God could act according to his will on earth and bring his will to earth. So we have that dynamic here, but that is going to be a challenge for us to bring heaven to earth, and it's not going to be without a fight. You have to know that to live God's will on earth is to actually to pick a fight with the world. So don't be surprised that there's like some difficult things that come your way. And so just because it's expected by God that you're going to have hardship and challenges does not mean it's coming from God. We think that because Jesus suffered that God wants us to suffer. He's like, I don't want you to suffer. It's just going to happen. Because the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And so we have to completely disconnect this idea that God's like, oh, I have such a great storm to send that man. It's going to be awesome. It's going to level him. We have to break this kind of notion that God is sending things. And because Jesus made it abundantly clear that the world is going to hate you. What do you expect the world to do that hates you? Probably cause you hardship. Jesus said, John 5, 19, because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you. The world hated Jesus. Jesus lives in you. Therefore, the world's going to hate you. So you can expect the adversity that comes with the territory. If you don't want adversity on your life, then you probably shouldn't become a Christian. I don't know how to say it other than that. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear who's the author of our hardship. The enemy comes to steal, kills, and destroy. Satan is the ruler of this world, the prince of the air. And so he brings about stealing, killing, and destroying, which are the exact attributes of any trial and hardship, is it not? So here's what so many people don't recognize, is that trials and tribulations and tragedies, they try to come against your relationship with God in order to make you fall away from him. Trials and tribulations don't come to you with good intentions. They come after you to make you fall away. Where does it say that in the Bible? Well, Jesus said it twice. Matthew 13, 21. He says, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Matthew 24, 9 and 10. 
Then they will deliver you into tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So Jesus is saying trials and tribulations and hardships actually come after you with the goal to separate you from God. You're like, well, that's not what my Bible says. I remember a verse kind of like that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Awesome. Let's read it. It's Romans 8.38. It says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that's great. What that does is it promises that nothing that happens to you can separate God's love to you. But a hardship, you know what it can do? It can stop your love from him. Nothing can stop the love of God. Amen. Yes. But trials and tribulations, they don't have the power to stop God's love for you, but they do have the power to stop your love to God. They won't succeed on God's end, but they might succeed on your end. And so we like to say, we'd like to believe that trials are a universally good experience. That good things always happen from trials. The problem is our experience tells us otherwise. Every single person in this room knows someone who had a hardship that actually caused them to stumble in their faith and even fall away. I know people who are so discouraged and disappointed, they curse God. So, so we, we, we can't appeal that trials always produce good things because that's not the case. We actually know people who are worse. Now, I'm no expert on the logic of God, but why would God send something to you that has the purpose and the power to make you fall away from him? Doesn't make any sense, does it? For him to bring something against you would also to bring something against himself. The topic I'm continually perplexed and just fascinated by is that Christ is in us. God is in us. We are the presence of the Holy Spirit, the temple. And so for God to send adversity onto you is for him to send adversity on, on himself. And Jesus warns that trials and tribulations make people fall away. And so God is not bringing us trials well, how do you know? Well, we know that Jesus is the one who helps us overcome them. Romans 8.38, the verse very before says, In all these things, talking about trials and tribulations, that we overwhelmingly conquer them through Christ who loved us. We have a trial. We have a hardship. It is Jesus who helps us be victorious in them. So it doesn't make a whole lot of, sen- a whole lot of sense for God to be the instigator of our trials when he's the one who's equipping us to get through them. He's the one who, fight, who empowers us to fight and be victorious over them. He'd be empowering you to resist against himself. He says, I'm going to empower you and equip you to overcome all challenges and tribulations that I'm sending you. Doesn't really make sense, does it? But we also find that trials and tribulations, our New Testament instruction for it is really clear. We actually are called to conquer our tribulations. When we have a battle, we're actually instructed to stand up, not lay down, Ephesians 6. Our instructions for suffering is to pray against it, not welcome it, James 5.13. These would all 
be acts of rebellion if God was sending you trials. But we get confused because there's this really tricky kind of notion that as we encounter trials and difficult circumstances that we're supposed to have one thing. What is it? Joy. The Bible's really clear. We're to have joy. And because we're instructed to have joy, we think, well, it's just really God's goodness in disguise. That these, the death in the family, the disease, the suffering, it's just God's goodness in disguise. Because we're supposed to have joy. How does that make sense? Because the Bible also tells us to mourn with people. You're not supposed to suffer this loss, this tragedy, and try to manufacture joy. It's not a joyful situation. So how do we understand this? James 1, 2, and 3 says this, says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so we equate that if we are to be joyful for trials, that then certainly we want perseverance, and perseverance God must have, and so therefore the trial must come from God. But we're not supposed to be joyful in that hardship itself. We're supposed to be joyful despite the hardship. God's not asking you to celebrate for the hardship. He's asking you to celebrate during the hardship. Why is that? It's because he is the one who helps us overcome. We can have joy to know that God is good despite our crummy circumstances. That's why we have a joy. Here's the truth is that it would actually, if you believe that God was sending your hardships, it would be impossible to authentically be joyful in God if you believe that God was a sender of your pain. It's impossible to be joyful in God when you believe he is responsible for what you're experiencing. And so we're to be joyful in him because he's comforting us, he's equipping us through it. But because of this verse, some people think that we have joy as a result of God sending them to us. Now, it takes zero faith to believe God is authoring your pain. It takes no faith to believe this hardship, this trial, this tribulation is coming from God. It's kind of our default position. It takes all the faith to believe that God is good despite what I'm going through and to believe that he's the comforter for me and helping me get through it, and he's equipping me. And so consider this. If God is sending you your hardship, why would we trust him to help us out of it? It's riddled with all this logical challenges when we, we, we bring God's direct hand into our hardship. Why would we trust him to help us fix it? But God has called our great comforter in times of trial. And it'd be really odd for him to also be the one who helps us out of it. So don't buy the lie that God wants to send you trials and tribulations in order to teach you either. You know how I know? To give us the Holy Spirit. People like to say, well, he's sending you this. Div- I've been there when people have said, yeah, the divorce, it's just so God can teach you. You mean my husband left me for another woman so that God can teach me? you got to be kidding me. It's saying something awful about God's heart. It's saying something even worse about the Holy Spirit because look what the Holy Spirit does. John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. God doesn't give you hardship to teach you things. Certainly you can learn from them. Every situation that we encounter is a way for us to learn. But God does not need to send you something in order to teach you something. The Holy Spirit is God's way of teaching and is far better than any event or any pain we could ever experience. So if I want to teach my kids 
don't touch a hot stove, how do you many know, like, I can tell them, don't touch the hot stove? I don't have to go take their hand over there and burn it. But that's what our theology is. That we actually have to burn the hand of the child in order that they learn and are, are taught. When the Holy Spirit, there's nothing, let me say this right, there's nothing that the, is more equipped and more qualified to teach you than the Holy Spirit. We can still learn from any situation, any heartbreak, any trial, any letdown, any disappointment. We can learn from all those things, but nothing is ever more qualified to teach you than the Holy Spirit. And so certainly we learn from those things, and God is excited that we can repurpose these difficult situations to learn, but that's not why he sends it. But joy is very strategic for two reasons. The first is this. What's the role of joy is the question I'm asking here. What is the role of joy? It's really, it's really helpful for two reasons. The first is that joy is the best defense against trials and tribulation. God's not sending them to you, but you've given joy, a fruit of the Spirit, as a defensive mechanism against trials and tribulations. Because anything that God produces in you, the devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Everything that God does in you, the devil wants to take away from you. And so joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You can look at all the things that the devil wants to steal from you by looking at the fruits of the Spirit. I really feel like my patience is really like coming under attack. Oh, that's really interesting, yeah. It must be a coincidence. Not like there's an enemy at all that wants to take it from you. And so by continually seeking joy, we rob Satan of the prize that he's trying to take from us. Satan's coming after you to take the fruit of the Spirit. He's coming after you to take joy. And so when you respond with joy, you are replenishing what he's trying to take and therefore frustrating him. It is stealing his reward for bringing attack on you. If he thinks, oh, if I just bring this, oh, all the joy is going to be evaporated, and you still respond with joy. How do you know that when it says resist the devil, he'll flee from you, that means the devil's decently lazy? Something comes upon you, and you say, God is good. I don't care what is happening right now. God is good, and I'm not going to pretend that death, disease, discouragement is a good thing. I'm not going to manufacture joy. I can authentically celebrate that God is good. This situation's bad, and I'm going to celebrate God's goodness. And instantly, that is giving repellent to the enemy. It's like, uh-oh, this person knows their Bible. I might go pick on somebody else. I've actually witnessed how Oftentimes, discouragement, I lessen the period of my discouragement by the ability for me to trust God that he's good despite my disappointment. Say, God, I just love you. I celebrate you. Thank you that you're not trying to teach me anything right now. I take so much comfort in that. I don't know about you. But to know when something terrible happens, I don't like, oh, what are you trying to say? You know, he's like, I gave you the Holy Spirit if I want to tell you. And we, we, we say, okay, that, I don't know why that happened. But I don't need to mix God teaching me a lesson or trying to humble me or do all those different kind of weird games with me, I can actually authentically celebrate him that you are good. I trust you. My security is not in my disappointment. My security is in you. And I celebrate because I'm in you and you're in me. And shockingly, my ability to get out of the trial becomes easier and better. And so when we respond with joy, we're just replenishing that very thing that the enemy is trying to steal from you. And we respond with joy 
because that's the exact thing that Satan is trying to remove out of your life. In other words, joy is one of the ways that we actually resist the devil in trials. You say, how do you resist the devil? Well, you can do that in a lot of different ways, but one of the ways in trials is to have joy. It's respond with joy. It's a defensive mechanism. It's really how you get revenge on the devil. He tries to come and ruin your day, and you respond with joy. He's like, oh, man. Second, what's the benefit of joy? Is that we can have joy because of what is developed in us from the trial if we conquer it. Because remember, there are people who don't make it out better from a trial. But we can have joy for what's going to be developed in us because of the trial. And there are things in life that are only developed through an experience of resistance. If you want to develop greater courage, the only way for you to do that is to resist your fears. I'm not as nervous anymore to public speak, but before I was, as terrified. The only way to overcome your fear of public speaking is to do some public speaking. It doesn't matter how many books I read. There are some things that require an experience of resistance to build the thing that I actually want to have. I actually, I have a software company, and I had the unfortunate experience not too long ago of having to fire somebody. I've never had to fire anybody in my life. And on one hand, I'm like, oh, this sucks, man. Like, oh, this is terrible. But then the thought occurred to me is like, I'm going to walk into this, and on the other side, I'm going to be a better leader. I'm going to make a decision for the team that's the right one, and I'm going to have a backbone and a spine that I didn't have before. And on the other side of that, I'll be able to make decisions to avoid this in the next time. But if it ever happens again, I'll now have something. I've added something new to me. There's things that only can be developed in resistance. The example of a chick in an egg. You see a little birdie, like, trying to get out of an egg? Did you know that when that's happening, when that little baby chick is struggling, the circulation is going to its limbs? As it struggles, it's actually getting stronger that enables it actually to get out of the egg. In fact, if you open the the shell for the little bird, the bird will die. You actually have to let it be because the strength that it develops in the struggle is actually what equips it to survive outside the egg. And so there are things in life and things in faith that only are developed through resistance. It doesn't mean that God is sending you that resistance at all. It just means that we can have joy for the opportunity to develop something that's great in us. One of the reasons we get to have joy in trials is because trials are not supposed to be happening all the time. They're infrequent. They ought to be. And so we can have joy for the opportunity to develop something in us because resistance is the only ingredient which produces strength. I know this from years of not going to the gym. I keep eating Taco Bell hoping that muscles come out of my arms. It just hasn't happened yet. As hard as I keep trying, it just doesn't happen. To develop strength, you actually have to endure resistance. And so we can have Joy for trials and hardships, not because God is sending it, but because these are the experiences that have resistance, which develops strength in us, which produce perseverance in us, and much more. But more importantly, 
if you think your trial and your hardship is from God, you might not resist. If you get to have joy in a trial because you get to resist and develop strength and perseverance, but you now think it's from God, you might behave like Job and tear your robe and shave your head and sit down. Interesting, isn't it? So make no mistake about it. The tribulations will be, are meant to be conquered, which is another reason why they're temporary. Because a tribulation that doesn't get conquered turns into an affliction. There are people who encounter tribulations that never conquer them, and they live with them their entire lives because they think that this is God's will for their life. And when you think it's God's will for your life, you have no resistance. If you have no resistance, you have no strength. If you have no strength, you have no perseverance. And if you have none of that, then you've lost the battle against the tribulation. Remember that Satan flees when you resist him. And that's why it's so important for how you view trials and how you view joy in trials. It's a defense mechanism. It's also this opportunity that I get a unique opportunity to develop a new muscle to be better so that the next time Satan comes here, I'm going to punch him twice instead of once. That you get to go through those experiences knowing that on the other side, of this, if this does not defeat me, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be stronger, and Satan's going to go pick on someone his own size. But the consequence if you don't, if you lay down, if you believe, well, I just, I'm trying to learn what God's saying. The people who say, I'm just trying to learn what God's saying in this tribulation, stay in the tribulation the longest. And they're all waiting for God to say something, and he's like, I'm not speaking through this thing. And when we do that, Satan will continue to steal from you for as long as you believe God is the one who's doing the taking. If you believe that God's doing all the taking, you'll lay back and let Satan continue to take, and you'll continue to attribute to God. The New Testament model, resist the devil, he'll flee. He comes after your joy. That's why when he brings trials and tribulations, we get to have the joy saying, this isn't from God, and you're going to regret coming and picking on me. And so I'm going to respond with joy. I'm going to take back what you're trying to come after me for. I'm going to replenish it with joy, and I'm going to overcome the tribulation. I'm going to seek my Father who is the equipper for me to conquer this tribulation, and I'm going to be strong on the other side of it because I'm not going to let this tribulation make me fall away. Amen? That's what I got for you guys tonight. Wasn't that awesome? Come on, let's give it up for Dr. Eric Knopf. <laughs> Amazing. Um, you know, Scripture says, and I believe in 2 uh, Timothy 2.15, uh, study to show thyself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. And that is exactly what this mighty man did for us. He rightly divided that word. Um, <laughs> so to maximize our time with him, we're going to take questions. But if we can, if you have a question, can you come to the aisle nearest to you and just stand right here in the front? And myself and James, we will come to you. Um, so just stand up to one of the front aisles and we'll come to you so that you can answer your questions. And the few more moments we have, sure. uh, Mr. Knopf. Cool. Question number one. I'm going to hold the mic, you guys. Could you expound a little further on how God is sovereign 
but not in control? I may have heard it wrong, but... Sure. What people equate is that God's sovereignty, his all power, means that he has to exercise power all the time. That's what they believe, that if he's really all powerful, it requires him to make sure everything happens the way it is. When, in actuality, the most supreme idea of being all-powerful is that you can limit the power that you want. Because God gives us power and authority, which would be a disingenuous invitation if really it's like, nah, I got it all. So we have a problem with the promises of us that he gives us as well as a notion of, of his sovereignty that it doesn't have to mean he controls everything. The best way to think about it is that God is in charge, not in control. Psalm 115, verse 16 says, The heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth has been given to man. And we find that man has been equipped, has been given authority to do what he is, what he wills. And man has been given access to the power of the kingdom. It says to man, I've given you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. So this notion that God controls everything is really difficult because it makes the promises of our life really disingenuous. It's a really tough debate, and I don't, this is my view, you don't have to just agree, but I, I have a real hard time feeling that God empowers us, but then kind of not really. Like, I don't like to pretend. And also, he lives in us. If there's one conversation that's continuing to get lost in what God does, is we keep forgetting that God is in us. John three thirty four. I give you the spirit without limit. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, you are united with the Lord and one with him in spirit. So this idea, us versus God, is a really foreign concept if we really understand who we are in Christ. So when it says that God is in control, I guess, you know, some people say, well, I'm in control and God's in me, so maybe, but I can mess it up. <laughs> I can actually disobey, which he cannot. He is faithful and just. He will not uh, deny himself, but we can so it is, it's a, a conversation that may not ever get settled, but the best way I like to think of it is that God is in charge. He's supreme over in his authority and in charge, but as he control people, I fall shy of that. The other reason for that is that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So it seems, counter, it, it seems contrary to his nature to give us a spirit of self-control while then controlling everything. It, it doesn't seem like it, it fits there. Um, a fun fact. And I talked about this the week number one, but the NIV Bible inserts the word control 54 times. But in the New Testament, if you look at the word control, in the New Testament, it's only used eight times. And every single time the word control is there, it means self-control. The rest of the times actually mean authorship. They mean authority. So it says that God controls the clouds. It actually says, well, God formed the clouds. Totally two different thoughts. If God is controlling the clouds, that's really hard for us when Jesus is rebuking a storm. How does that work? So the other challenging thing, too, is 1 John 5.19. So people say God is in control, but 1 John 5.19 says, we're children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So for me, as I look at the scriptures, I find a lot of different problems with the notion that God controls everything. I like that he's in charge. He's apportioned us authority to take authority of what is on earth and to bring heaven to earth. I like that a whole lot more, but this is a debate that's never been resolved. <laughs> Uh-oh, you got a Bible on you. 
Oh, a notepad. Test, test. All right, so now it's actually uh, my notebook. So, all right, so first of all, thanks for the message. Uh, I Thank think, you. Um, I definitely agree that tribulations uh, definitely come against our relationship with him and make us fall away from him, right? So I definitely agree. Um, the question I had was, and I think the misconception I have is that if I fall short or when I fall short, that, you know, a trial is coming my way, right? That's the misconception that we have, that God is going to send these trials my way because of falling short. But uh, maybe can elaborate on this a little more is if God doesn't really respond to our sin with trials, like how should we view correction or how should we view chastisement? Like what does that look like within you know, our day to day? Like discipline. Whoa, right. sorry. Right. Yeah, discipline. Um, you can research. Well, well, first let me apply to natural fatherhood. A lot of my theology changed when I became a father is I, I realized the best way to discipline my kids is actually to talk to them is that through voice, you teach, you correct. So Jesus talks about pruning. The word for prune and discipline is the exact same word. So when Jesus talks about that every good tree he prunes, it's basically every good tree he disciplines. Then he looks to the disciples and he says, you are already pruned, meaning you are already disciplined by the word that I've spoken to you. So God's first decision and choice is always to discipline us with the teacher who teaches us all things. It's relational for him to teach us through relationship and not through circumstance. Now, I allow my kids to have their free decisions, but also have their freely chosen consequences. So if I tell my kids, don't do that, it's going to hurt, I'm teaching them, I'm teaching them, they touch it, it hurts, did I cause them to get hurt? No. But like, I let you hurt yourself. You know, like God loves us enough that if you go rob a bank, you're probably going to go to jail. You know, it would, be, it, would be, it would be incorrect for us to have an idea that we could make horrible decisions and then God's mercy would keep us from the consequences that might naturally come of it. His love, as any parent is, I love you enough to let you decide what you want to do. I'm telling you not to, but if you do, you have to know that this is the, the consequence that might come. So when I look at discipline and, and consequences, again, I think, gosh, I've, I've made so many mistakes, and I'm like, oh, man, well, now, now I know. But I stop shy. I was like, well, did I not listen to God maybe teaching me beforehand? So a situation can remind me to listen to the Father, but I feel especially with Jesus' words and his example, you are already pruned, you're already disciplined by the word I've spoken to you. I find discipline is always the best in the voice and the relational format. Does that make sense? It's a great question. 